good, very good. Um, my brother, everybody, isn't he nice? He's got one nice word, she's great, and I've got others, but I can't think of them, so I'm just, she's just great. Um, he is actually a very nice brother to have. Growing up, he's always get ready for an awe. He's always been one of my best friends. Oh, isn't that sweet? But I will say, there have been times in our life when actually we've not got on quite as well as we do right now. You see, I have always been quite a pleasant person, but <laughs> my brother, not so. Sometimes he can be incredibly annoying, especially when we were kids. He went through phases. One of those phases was that he used to try and scare me silly. He would hide under a bed and jump out, or hide behind a door and jump out, and it worked a treat every time. I would jump right out of my skin. Um, and there was this one time when we were in Ikea as a family. And so me and the rest of my family, we were just enjoying the beautiful, aesthetically pleasing atmosphere that they create there, looking at all of the showroom displays. And Johnny thought it was time for a good old prank. So what he did, he sneakily snuck off and found a closet and hid in it. So whilst the rest of us were just perusing the shop, he was there, patiently waiting in this closet. Now, the intention behind his plan was that someone in our family would walk over to said closet, open the door to admire the beautiful hinges and spacious interior, and suddenly they would get the fright of their life and he would scream at them or something. So here he was in the closet, and suddenly he heard footsteps approaching. The door started to open, and Johnny went, boo! And what came after that was not what he expected. There was a blood-curdling scream as this complete stranger on the other side of the door just got the fright of her life. And the whole shop froze to turn and see what the commotion was. There was this poor wee lady just like, oh! And Johnny just tiptoed awkwardly off, embarrassed. You see... Nobody wants to open the closet door and find a Johnny Chernside. <laughs> Much like the old saying goes, nobody wants to find a skeleton in their closet. Nobody, I mean, you could say that thing about lots of things. Nobody wants to find a tiger in their closet. Nobody wants to find a rotten fish in their closet. The general gist of the expression is that nobody wants to open the closet door and find something unexpected that doesn't belong there. And the question that that could actually give us today is then, well, what is inside this closet? If someone was to open the door of your life and see what was inside, what would they find? Are we people who are living with integrity in the way that we live our lives? Now, the passage that we're about to read, I'll give you a sneak preview so that you can have time to find it. It's 2 Corinthians 8, 16, 9, 5 to 9, 5. It'll come up on the screen if you've got an old-school paper Bible, just like this one, congratulations, um, and I'll read it out as well. In this passage that we're going to read, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and in the things that Paul does, in the things that Paul says, it is very clear that he is acting with integrity. He's kind of trying to keep this closet clean. And just for a little bit of backstory for you, in the letter that he's writing, he's writing to the church in, in Corinth, the Corinthians, and 
just a little bit before he wrote this letter, um, the churches over in Jerusalem had actually been hit by a famine. And so because of that, they fell into massive poverty. And so just like a lot of organizations and things would do today, what Paul did was he was kind of trying to rally all the churches to raise some money to go and send a relief gift to these people in Jerusalem. So he was doing that, going through all the churches that he'd set up all over different places. And one of those churches was the Corinthians. And there had been a point when the Corinthians seemed super eager. They were really willing to help and be part of this. But it kind of seemed like they maybe hadn't quite prepared themselves for this financial gift. They hadn't quite saved up. So what Paul is doing here is he is sending his friend, his co-worker Titus, over to the Corinthians to try and kind of encourage them and help them to prepare this gift that they had previously promised. So let's read. It's 2 Corinthians 8, 16 to 9, 5. Wonderful. It says, Thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the church and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am standing the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Very good. Now, before we go any further with that, we're just going to do a quick show of hands. So if you are someone sitting here and you love a good plan, you hear the word plan and just everything inside you starts to burst with joy, then put your hand up. If you are a planner, lovely. Wow, we have got a lot of planners in the room. Very good hands down. Next option, you are the complete opposite. Put your hand up if you're someone who you hear the word plan and it puts shivers down your spine. You hate it. You want to run a mile. If that's you, hate planning. Hey, oh, we have far less of them. That is surprising. Cool. Very good. Well, whether or not you are someone who loves a plan or hates a plan, what we've just read here 
is a plan that Paul has made. It's a plan to make sure everybody is in the right place at the right time. It's a plan to make sure that the Corinthians fulfill their promise of this financial gift. And actually, it's a plan to make sure that this entire operation surrounding this financial gift is done with integrity. There's integrity in the way that Paul has kind of, he's, he's not like turning up on their doorstep as a surprise saying, oh, look, I'm finally here, get, get your money ready, and they're just panicked. There's integrity in the way that Paul's giving the Corinthians time and space to prepare that money. He's not wanting it pried out of their hands. He's wanting it to be a gift that is willingly and generously given. And there's integrity in the way that it's not just Paul going and collecting this money by himself. If that was the case, people could have wrongly assumed stuff of him. They could have been like, oh, well, didn't you just pocket some of that for yourself? Or, or what if he acted with ill intentions in the way that he dealt with that? And Paul is leaving no space for gray areas here. He is covering the whole thing in integrity and transparency and just making it a really healthy operation. And the way that he does that actually sets up a really good framework for us of how we can live lives full of integrity, how we can live lives that are kind of keeping this closet clean. So, some of you are going to love this, some of you, sorry, might hate this. The first thing Paul has is a plan. It's clear in the way that he has written, that he has thought things through. None of this came about accidentally. He was super intentional in the way that he set things up and the people that were around this whole thing. And in verse 20, Paul tells us why. Why did he bother to do things this way? And he says, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. Paul is acting in a way that is proactive and not reactive. He's not waiting until stuff bursts up in his face to think, oh, we really should have done that better. He's making plans now so that in the future they avoid criticism. He's, it's a plan for prevention that he has set in place there. And when we do that in our own lives, when we kind of set up plans or structures to help us act with integrity in our future, it's a plan for prevention for us too. It might be a plan to prevent you bending your morals in a certain situation. It might be a plan to prevent you acting out of temptation, whether that's in your finances and sexuality and relationships and power and work. It's a plan for prevention that we can put in place when we choose to act with integrity. And what those kind of situations are, they might look different for all of us, but they will come. Whether or not we like it, our integrity, there's lots of different points in our lives when our integrity can be challenged or compromised. And there's this saying that I've heard a lot of wise people say, so I'm just going to jump on the bandwagon. Um, It's, you've got to build the storm shelter before the storm hits. That is what Paul is doing here. He's planning for prevention. He's doing something now to make certain things happen in his future. It's a plan for prevention. So what I'll ask is, what are the storms that might come in your life? What are the situations that you might get in that might challenge or compromise your own integrity? What is your storm? 
and then have a wee think of, right, well, if that's what my storm is, is that, if that's the thing that I'm trying to avoid in the future, then what am I going to put in place to prevent that? What kind of storm shelter am I going to set up to make that happen, to make me act a certain way? Now, a little while ago, I used to work in a bar in town, and in this bar, if you were a bartender, by default, you also became a chef. Um, so if someone came in and they placed an order, you'd quickly get their drink and then you'd go behind into the kitchen and rustle up whatever kind of food they ordered. Um, and despite the fact that it was, um, that they didn't have a paid chef, it was actually quite a classy place. So it wasn't just, you know, microwave food in the oven. This was like rustle up your own pizza dough from scratch, put it in the oven kind of place. It was quite hard work. And there was one day where a group of about 10 friends came in. They all ordered drinks, and they all ordered individual pizzas. So I served them, went back into the kitchen, rustled up 10 individual pizzas from scratch using only two pizza ovens. I had to get them in the pizza ovens, out, all at the same time, hot. Now, you didn't give me a round of applause, but I think that's a pretty hard, pretty hard thing to be able to do. Thank you. Um, now, you didn't give me a round of applause because I could maybe see some panic over some people's eyes there. Of Sarah, well, how did you actually manage to do that? Ten pizzas in one go, wow. Let me tell you how I did it. I lost my integrity along the way is how I did it. You see, I was in the kitchen, and I was rustling up these pizzas, and things were going okay, and then suddenly, one pizza took it out of the oven, and it flipped over on itself. It was a horrible mess. And I didn't have time to whip an 11th replacement pizza. What was I going to do? So took a moment to breathe, took the first nine pizzas out to the customers. Da, 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 here you go. Then I turned to the ninth, the tenth person. And I said, hey, man, I'm really sorry. Your pizza's just on its way. But I just wondered, we're about to branch out into making calzones as part of our menu. And I just wondered, are you, would you be happy if I just trialed that with your pizza? Now, if you don't know, a calzone is basically a pizza that is folded in on top of itself, professionally on purpose. Um, and so thankfully, this guy was like, yeah, you know what? Sure, give it a go. So away I went whoo, to the kitchen. <laughs> made my accidental folded-in pizza look class, took it back to the guy and said, here you go, um, I really hope you enjoy it, this is totally new. Um, <laughs> I said, I'd love your feedback, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to come back in however, however long it takes you to eat your calzone, and you can just let me know what you think. So he finished his pizza, calzone, and he completely empty plate. I went back, I said, oh, how did you find it? And he was like, oh, that was amazing. I loved it. You definitely need to add those to your menu. Whew. So I said, great, I will tell my boss. Thank you very much. And that is how I avoided a disaster, ladies and gentlemen. Good job, me. See, in that situation, the easiest thing I found to do was to make up a little white lie to cover my tracks. But just because something is easy doesn't mean that it's right. Now, there's a band, some of you might have heard of them before. They're one of my favorites. They used to be big a couple years back. They're called The Fray. And any, 
Any fans? A couple? One, two, three, woo! In the house! They have a song that I love, and I think it really d describes that kind of situation well. The lyrics in the song are this. They say, sometimes the hardest thing and the right thing are the same. Sometimes the hardest thing and the right thing are the same. And in Paul's letter, he describes what it's been like for him coming up with this beautiful plan to live with integrity and transparency. And oh, isn't it wonderful? He describes what it was like to come up with that plan. And in verse 21, he says this. He says, we are taking pains to do what is right. Taking pains to do what is right. Not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. You see, coming up with a plan to help you act with integrity in your future isn't always an easy thing to do. In fact, sometimes it's a really hard thing to do. And actually, even if you've come up with the plan, well done, sticking to that plan when you're challenged and you're compromised and it could be tempting to want to kind of twist what you thought you were going to do in that situation, sticking to your plan to live life with integrity isn't always an easy thing to do. Paul knew that. He described it as painful. But are we willing to be people who live lives of integrity even when it's hard, even when it's not the easy choice to make, even when it's actually a painful choice to make to live life with integrity? You see, Paul set his standard for us with this integrity. He set kind of this good framework up for us. First of all, he had a plan. Planners in the room, give me a woohoo! Yay, you love the plan. Sorry, non-planners. He made a plan. And secondly, he stuck to his plan, even when that was hard. Another key factor, then, that Paul has in this kind of framework for how to live life with integrity is that he had really good people surrounding his plan. So have a plan and have some people. Now, back in 2010, I was on a Duke of Edinburgh hiking weekend. Lovely stuff. Um, so me and my friends, we were in a group together. We were going to go on this big weekend and hike a mountain and camp and be great adventurers. And before this weekend took place, what we did is we had a wee team meeting. We all gathered around a table and decided who was going to be in charge of bringing the tent and who was going to be in charge of dinner and who was in charge of the shovel for the toilet. And the, the job that I got given, me and my friend Saren, got given the job of mapping out our route, creating a map to get us from A to B, from where we're starting the walk to the campsite at the end of the night. So great, we were excited about that. Me and Saren thought we are expert adventurers, we're gonna love this job. So what we did, we went off, we made our map, and our team were actually very, very kind to us. They said, oh, let's, like, we'll help, we can do it all together as a team, and me and Saren went, ah, we don't need your help, we're expert adventurers. And then our teachers at school, they were like, oh, let's see your map, we'd love to help you. And we were like, nah, we're expert adventurers, we don't need your help, thank you very much. And then finally, we had our map ready, the day of the expedition came along, and off we went. We all had backpacks that were practically as big as us, and we started off this wee hiking route. Had our map in hand, off we go. And we're looking at our map, following the road, and there was this one point that we got to where every other group on this 
school trip adventure thing. Every other group went left. And we looked at them, we were like, look at them all going off together, having to follow the same route. That's not creative. You know what we're going to do? We're going to follow our map. We're going to go right. Yeah, we're the proper adventurers here. We can do this on our own. So our group went off to the right, everybody else off to the left. And we kept following the route, kept following the path, and then eventually the path took us to a gate. And after the gate, there was a field. And in the field, there was no path. And so we looked at the gate, and we looked at the field, and we looked at our map, and then back at the field, and back at the gate, and we were like, huh, where's the path gone? And so we thought, well, it, it's a grassy season. The grass must have just grown, and we can't see the path anymore. But it must be there, because our map says that there's a path in the middle of this field. So. We climbed the fence, went through the field. After the field, we went through a forest. After a forest, we climbed under some bushes. After the bushes, we went along another fence, through a river. And eventually, a couple hours later, we ended up in a cow field with no idea where we were going or what direction we were meant to be next. It was awful. And it might not sound like a stressful situation to a bunch of very wise, reasonable people in this room here, but to a bunch of 15-year-olds on an outdoor adventure. We felt like we were in Bear grills or something, just struggling to survive. There was one point where a helicopter flew through the sky past us, and we were like, help, help! They must have sent out a search party. They knew that we were in trouble. Um, yeah, we were terrified. You see, the problem was that me and Saren aren't expert map makers after all. People offered us help, and we said, nah, we can do this on our own. We don't need your help. And the problem with that is that actually, cutting people out of your plan isn't a good idea most of the time. When we share our plans with others, we're much more likely to go the right way. And in fairness, I mean, Saren and I didn't know that we were going to go the wrong way. We didn't intend to make a map that was leading us through the middle of nowhere. Um, but often that's the case with integrity, too. We often don't try to act without integrity, but sometimes it just happens. And then at some point, you're down a road that you never meant to be on in the first place. But when we share our plans with others, we're much more likely to go the right way. That's what Paul did. He shared his plan, his plan for this financial gift. He shared it with lots and lots of really good people. And he didn't just go out into the street and be like, hey, excuse me, stranger, nice to meet you. I'm Paul. I'm about to do this massive financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. I just love to, you know, share my heart with you. Tell me, tell you my plans. You know, you can keep me accountable. He didn't just pick any random person, Paul was really intentional with the type of people that he had surrounding his plan. So we'll take a look. How did Paul go about making people part of his plan? Now, you might want to take a deep breath for this one. It's mind-boggling stuff. Paul made people part of the plan by asking them. He asked people to come in and be part of his plan. In verse 17, it says Titus welcomed his appeal. So Paul clearly appealed to Titus. He asked him, hey man, can you come along and be part of this with me? 
In verse 18, it talks about the brother who was chosen by the churches. So it seems like there would have been some kind of asking moment there where Paul went to the churches and said, hey, I'd love you to pick someone to come along with me in this plan. Paul invited people in. He was being proactive and not reactive. He surrounded people in his plan so that there was transparency in everything that he did. And that's actually something that we can really struggle with in our society. I don't know if it's just me that thinks this, but we have a society where the self-help industry is worth over $10 billion in America alone. We have a society that is more connected than ever through media and devices, and yet more and more and more people are living lives that are insular and isolated and individualistic. We have a society where the majority of people say, I can do this on my own. I don't need your help. In fact, I'm going to prove it to you. I can do this on my own. And the problem with that, the problem when we go along with this kind of self-reliant society that the rest of our culture lives in, is that actually to say, no, I'm going to be totally self-sufficient in this. I, need, I don't need anybody else. To go along with that kind of self-sufficiency is in a way to reject the need for the cross, to reject the need for the greatest help that we have ever been given Say, no, I don't need anybody. I've got everything covered by myself. So as a church, we have a moment where we can actually be countercultural with some of this stuff. We can say, I, I need people. God, I need you. We can, as a church community, turn to each other and say, hey, I need you. In fact, right, I'm a, I'm a kid's pastor, so sometimes just to keep people alive, we need to do things like this. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, hey, mate, I need you. Go do it. (laughs) Very good. This time, turn to the person behind you or in front of you and say, hey, I need you too. (laughs) Lovely. (laughs) Wonderful. You see, it's one of the defining features of our faith and of the Bible is that actually we need help. We can't do this on our own. And so when we take that opportunity to be countercultural as a church community, we can say, hey, people, I need you. We can live lives that are invitational, inviting people in to our good and our bad and our ugly. We can live lives that are helping each other, that are asking for help, receiving help, giving help, supporting one another. That is what the Christian faith is partly like. That's, that's, it's ingrained. It's like running through the whole tract of the whole thing. We need help. And when Paul did that, when he invited people into his plan for integrity, he was really specific. He, yeah, he wasn't just like... Uh, Maybe you, and maybe you, and let's pick some names out of the hat. He was really specific with the type of people that surrounded him. In verse 18 and 22, and 23 actually, it talks about people who are known by the churches. He picked people that were known by the churches. So people who had a track record of some sort. They were people who were 
partners and co-workers so there would have been some sense of like shared vision and values there those were the kind of people that he was inviting in on this plan in verses 17 and 22 it talks about people who were enthusiastic and zealous so he asked people that were full of passion for God to come along and be part of his plan in verses 16 and 22 it seems like Paul chose people who just had like a deep sense of love for others. They were people who were willing, it says. They were people who had confidence in others. They, they loved well. They were people who knew how to love well. And this is my favorite. Paul says in verse 23 that he picked people who were an honor to Christ. Isn't that like just an amazing way to describe someone, an honor to Christ? I want to be that. I think that's amazing. So when we try and take some of this framework of how Paul lived his own life with integrity, when we try to have a plan in place and have good people surrounding the plan, we can think, right, first of all, what is my storm? What are those situations that I might encounter that actually, if I don't have a plan for what I'm going to do now, I might end up in a situation that I don't want to be in? What is our storm? And once you've got what your storm is, have a think, right, well, then who is my storm shelter? Who are the people that I'm going to get to surround my plan, to help be with me, to help support me, to help love me, so that when I get challenged or get compromised in those kind of things, if I have this shelter around me of people who are there and have my back and are helping me go in the direction that I want to be. And if you're sitting there thinking, huh, I don't actually really know who those people might be for me, then why not think about that list of the type of people that Paul had alongside him and alongside his plan? Think, right, who do I know that has a really good track record for living with integrity? Who's someone that I look at and think, wow, if I go through a storm, I want them in my boat, I want them on my team, I want them by my side. Or who's someone that you know who you think is just so full of passion and enthusiasm for God, and you're like, oh, that's who I want. That's who I want around me, supporting me, helping me. Or who are people, maybe have a think, people that you know that just have a deep, deep sense of love for others, and you're like, man, in the middle of that terrifying storm, I want them with me. I want their love and their support with me. Or the very fun one. Think, who are someone that you look at and you're like, they are an honor to Christ. I want to be like that and I want to have them with me. Think of who those people might be in your life and then do what Paul did and ask them. Say, hey, I want you to be someone who is with me and beside me and for me and knows the good and the bads and the ins and the outs of everything that I'm doing so that I can live a life full of integrity. And if even after that, you're like, huh, who do I know who's like that? If you still feel a little bit stuck and you feel like, ah, I don't know who I can ask or I don't feel quite comfortable asking people to be there for me in that way, then we've actually just created a really, really good pastoral support network as a church. Paul did that. He didn't come up with all the people that were going to help him by himself. He went to the churches and said, hey, can you help me find someone? Can you help me find someone to go along and join in this plan? So we can do that too. We can go on our church website, Catalyst Vineyard Central, and you can say, hey, I need some help 
finding people to be part of my plan, finding people to be part of my storm shelter. And that thing, I mean, I should have maybe had a link or something for you there, but that thing online, if you go to Catalyst Vineyard and then go to the central part of our Catalyst Vineyard page, you scroll down a little bit, I practiced last night, and it comes up with this big bit, and you can ask someone to be there for you by praying with you, You can ask someone to be there for you by being a mentor to you. You can ask someone to be there and be a coach and help kind of coach you through some stuff in life. And I'd encourage you, if anything, that is a resource to be greedy with. Like, it is an amazing resource. It is a beneficial resource. And it is a resource that could definitely help you when storms in life come your way. Um, I've had lots of prayer ministry at different points in life. I have lots of, I'm very greedy with it, I have lots of people in my life that are mentors and coaching me through things because I want, I want to live a life of integrity. I want to live a life that I get to the end and I'm like, yes, I ended up where I wanted to be. And actually, when I've gone through times when I've been like, oh, man, I'm not living with integrity. When this closet has been full of rubbish instead of clean and open and you know everything that's inside. I've, those people, those mentors in my life, those people that have prayed with me and supported me, they've been the ones that have been there in those times when the storms hit. And actually, sometimes I look back and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what path I would have ended up on if I didn't have those people around me. So I'd really, really encourage you, if you don't have those kind of people in place in your life now, I'd really encourage you to do that because it's a super beneficial thing. So, Paul's framework for integrity in this passage. He shows us that we can be people of integrity by having a plan and by sticking to that plan even when it's a hard thing. He shows us that we can be people of integrity by surrounding ourselves with really good people so that when those storms hit, you have a storm shelter that are already there for you, already supporting you, that can help you ride through that thing. Now, the reason for Paul's plan for integrity and the reason why it's a good thing for us to, impl- to implement that kind of framework isn't just so that we can feel good for a little while and, you know, I'm doing really well, I've got a good support network, look at me go. Because actually, if that's our purpose behind living a life of integrity, you're just going to end up competitive and exhausted. It's not, it doesn't really work. So as I've been thinking about this passage... I'm thinking, well, what is, what is the point in all this? What is the purpose behind wanting to live a life of integrity, choosing to live a life of integrity? And I kept thinking about this verse. It's from Philippians 3, 4. It says this, I run towards the goal to win the prize of being called to heaven. Heaven is our goal. Heaven is our prize. And along with that, I heard a story of this Tanzanian runner who was in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. And there was this guy, he was called John Stephen Aquari, and he was racing in the marathon in the Olympics. And actually, from the word go, John was having a really hard time. He wasn't used to the altitude, and so he had really bad cramps when he was running. And then halfway through the run, he had like a massive gash down his leg, and he dislocated his knee, and he was running with a bruised shoulder, and he was just having an awful time, and clearly in lots and lots of pain. And by the time John came round to the end of the marathon, 
nearly like most of the stadium had emptied out because he'd taken so long to get around this marathon. He was so behind everyone else. And when he finally crossed over that line, people said to him, they were like, John, why did you bother? Why did you keep going? Why did you persevere even, like you were in so much pain and everybody left and you could have just stopped. And he said this, he said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And when we're thinking about integrity in our own lives, we want to have a plan in place, not just so that we can start well and feel good for a little while. We want to have a plan for integrity in place and people surrounding us so that First of all, we want to be and become more like Jesus. We want to have a plan in place because we actually, we have a world crying out for people who live lives differently, who are countercultural in that, who ask for help, who live lives of truth and of integrity. All you have to do is turn on the news and see that people are crying out for people who are truthful and who have integrity. We have a chance to be that for the people around us. And we want to live lives of integrity and have people surrounding us so we can do that, so that we can get to the end of this race called life and know that we finished, and we finished well. That is our purpose. Why don't we stand? <clears throat>